Take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31. Have you ever noticed, and I'm sure you have, if you're, if you're anything beyond the five years of age, you understand that things are not always what they seem. Have you had that experience? <laughs> you also know that the roads that you sometimes travel down don't always lead you to where you thought they would. I'm the guy who loves getting off the main highway. And for those of you who don't understand this, before GPS existed, you had two ways of getting to your destination. Either a map on paper, or you guessed your way there. It's due south or due north, and right, and so as long as you're heading in that general direction, the road will eventually get you there. Only to find out that all of a sudden you're in a very different area than you thought you would be. So sometimes the roads we travel do not lead to where we thought they would. Same thing goes with people. People are not always what they portray themselves to be. And the way they present themselves, you know, this is just the greatest person in the world. And then all of a sudden, and sometimes it can be years down the road, all of a sudden you realize they are not that at all. Things sometimes are just very different than what we thought. When you get off that main highway, and you go down that road that you think will get us there, sure it can lead to some incredible and interesting adventures and surprises. But you know what? When, even though we may do that in life, when it comes to eternity, we cannot afford to take those adventurous chances. We must be absolutely clear on who we are, where we're going, and how to get there. Or the outcome will be absolutely devastating and nothing but. You will not accidentally find your way to heaven. And so the passage we're looking at today reveals the importance of understanding our salvation. So looking at Mark chapter 10, I want you to read with me verses 17 through 20. Listen to the story. And as he was setting out on his journey, remember Jesus is he's in the area of Perea and he's making his way to Jerusalem. A man ran, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. 
So here's this, here's this guy. And he not only seems to have his life in order, but he seems to be respectful as well as respectable and godly. And this guy comes up. We see him kneel before Jesus. We see him demonstrating this act of humility. He was, he was a ruler of a synagogue. We'll see that in a moment. But he called Jesus good, which even if he didn't mean it in terms of identifying God or Jesus as God, he's showing respect by acknowledging that Jesus is good. We see that he seems to be a God-honoring man because he's one who keeps the commandments of God. And we believe he's a good man because the other thing that we see within him is that he has concern about his eternal state. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is weighing on him. He wants to know and understand how can I assure that I will have eternal life? The Gospel of Luke refers to this man as the ruler of a synagogue. And so all around when we look at this guy, he's just, he's just an all-around what would seem to us as a good and godly fellow. And it's he who comes and he kneels before Jesus wanting to know what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Now, in Matthew's account of this same story, um, the wording is a little more specific because there he asks, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Think about this for a moment. How would you have responded to this man? Here's what you know about him. He's a good guy. Keeps the commandment. He's humble. He's respectful. He, he, he's a ruler of a synagogue. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer him? If you ask me, this guy to me seems like he's primed and ready for the gospel, Right? And myself, I would most likely take the approach that the Apostle Paul took when Paul answered the question of the Philippian jailer. You remember the story? There was an earthquake at night, and Paul and a number of his team were in prison, and they were set free. The jailer thought he was going to die because the prisoners escaped, and he said, Paul yells out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And so the, the, the question from this jailer is, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul responds... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You can find that story in Acts 16. This guy to me here in this story seems like very much the same thing. This guy's primed and ready to be saved. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The rest of his life is in order. In fact, to my own sin and shame, if I could build a church and if I want people in my church, these are often the people I'm like, man, if that guy would come here. That's a horrible way to think about this. That's a sin in my own heart. This guy just seemed to have it all together. He wouldn't be a great way to burden on the, on the pastors or the elders or the counseling team. This guy's got his life together. He loves God. He's serving God. He just wants to make sure that he knows how to inherit eternal life. And it's Jesus' response that's very interesting. Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. You see, even you and I know this. So Jesus isn't bringing up anything new, not even for him. We read in Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned, we read further on, and fallen short of the glory of God. As much as the message today is to believe that everyone is good, the reality is inside, in our heart, we are not good. That's the biblical truth. We are not good. And the reality is this young ruler, this ruler of the synagogue, most likely knew these truths because as a ruler of the synagogue, he would have known these verses, because they're contained both in, in Psalm 14 and in Isaiah 53. But when Jesus asks him this question, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus seems to just kind of leave him hanging just for a brief moment. Because he wants him to think about what he's just said. You call me good teacher, but no one is good except God. I think what's happening here is Jesus wants him to see how he falls short of that. Second to that, he wants him to see who he's calling good, Jesus. And if he's calling Jesus good, then by implication of what he's saying, or hopefully implying that Jesus is God. And I believe he wants him to see both of these elements here. But Jesus doesn't leave him hanging there long. He just leaves him hanging there just for a moment. But this is what's left with him. Only God is good. Only God is good. And then Jesus quickly turns and refers to the Ten Commandments. Looking at verses 19, starting there, going into verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud Honor your father and mother. So Jesus gives them an example of the commandments that this man would have grown up with. And we see this young man's response. And he says, I've kept all of these since I was a kid. So Jesus isn't bringing anything new to him. But then look at what happens in verse 21. And Jesus looked at him, loved him. That's important to note there. And loved him, and I'll show you why later. And he said to him, you lack one thing. And I want you to recognize that he seems to be saying three different things, but all three of these things are actually one thing. They come, they're combined as one. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven. And come follow me. Although these might seem like three different things or two different things, the reality is they point to one reality. And we'll show you that a little later. And so this man comes. He wants to know, how can I be sure? What, is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus gives him the straightforward answer. One thing. Sell everything you have, give it away, and come follow me. That's it. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now look at the response of this godly ruler. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The Gospel of Luke puts it this way. He was extremely rich. Let this sink in. He got the answer that he came for. How, what must I do to ensure that I have eternal life? Jesus told him, do this and you will have eternal life. Sell what you have, give to the poor and follow me and you'll have eternal life. Instead, what happens? He walks away because he had great possessions we read here in Mark. Now, let's, let's just take a moment to think about this. I believe it's very possible that this man thought because he was blessed and the way they understood it at that time was if you were well off as a, as a religious or godly person, you were blessed by God, which meant God's favor was upon you, right? And so um, I've got God's favor on me. I keep the law of God. In fact, I'm even the ruler of a synagogue. A synagogue is a community center that served as, as, as a place where the congregation came together to worship and to learn from God. Kind of like a modern day church building. And so he knew all of this. He was doing all of these things. But what Jesus revealed to him Listen, he said, these I have kept from my youth. I've done everything you've required, God. But what Jesus revealed is that he actually was not keeping the commandments. He probably thought he was good in the sight of God. And now Jesus is using the commandments to show him he's not. Because you see, the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments given to Israel was this. You shall have no other gods before me. In fact, Jesus took that first commandment and explained it this way in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 8. What does it mean to have no other gods before you? Here's what it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So what does it mean to not have an idol before God? It means that you must love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what happens? This man who seemed to be a godly ruler ends up walking away. He's sad, he's discouraged because his first love was not God. His first love, his trust, was in his possessions, in his wealth. 
the reality was he was an idolater. He was a commandment breaker. He was, in fact, not good. And, you know, even we today, oftentimes, we go, well, you know, I keep most of the Ten Commandments, right? Or I, I keep nine out of the ten, or, you know, I think I keep them good enough. But here's James 2.10 tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. So you see, there's no such thing as close enough or good enough. There, you cannot look at the law of God and say, yep, I met the mark that God has set forth. You see, the point of the law of God, or even simply the Ten Commandments, if you will, was not keep these as best you can, and you'll be assured eternal life because you're good. That's not the point of the law of God. The point of God's law was to reveal how we're unable to keep it. It reveals how short we fall. It reveals to us how we are not good. Here is a man who outwardly demonstrated a godly exterior who believed, most likely, that he was good. But Jesus used the very law that he kept and believed made him good, that qualified him for eternal life, and showed him that you are actually not good. You are not keeping the law, and you are not good. And the evidence was in the response of this young man, because instead of following Jesus, he was disheartened and walked away. Let this just sink in. Here was Jesus, God in the flesh. He who is truly good. The one who had actually left the splendor of heaven. Who had emptied himself of his own glory. And was walking towards Jerusalem with the intent to die. And Jesus says to this rich young ruler, you want eternal life? Follow me. But he didn't because he couldn't live without his riches. He couldn't, he couldn't live without the benefits that the riches provided him with. Let's pause here for a moment. Let us ask the same question. How would we respond? You know, the majority of us in this room, not all I understand, but the, the majority of, of us in this room probably live a lifestyle that was far greater than even most people did in that day in Israel. We would have been probably considered very wealthy in their eyes back then with the lives that we live now. But what happens not even looking at any other situations, but what happens? What is revealed about us when it comes to our finances or our possessions? What is our response when we are in danger of losing those things? In 2009, I, I was dealing with a situation 
of the family here in our own church. And it is, it's safe for me to use this example. I won't share with you what the situation was, but it was, it was a, a very trying and difficult one for the family. And what kind of floored me a bit was the response from, from the husband or the father in this family. They were a very well-to-do family, and he had tried to honor God in everything that he did, and yet the circumstance came upon them. And I remember in his rage and his anger and his frustration, he was just pouring his heart out. He said, what does God want from me, my money? That's very telling, isn't it? But the reality is, I wonder how we would respond. When Jesus, if Jesus were to stand in front of you today and would say, in this moment, right here, right now, sell everything you have and follow me, what would my response be? What would your response be? Remember, one fellow came and said to Jesus, let me, follow, let me follow you, but let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. If you're following me, come follow me. You don't go back. There's only one way, and that's forward. If Jesus stood in front of you today and said, sell everything you have and follow me, what would our response be? This morning, Sell what you have and follow me. I hope we would respond contrary to what this young man did. I hope I would. In my heart, I say I would. But in reality, would I? But I want you to note... Don't lose sight of this. Jesus loved this man. He felt compassion for him. He wasn't cold-hearted. He wasn't looking down his nose at this young ruler. Jesus loved this young man. That is the heart of Jesus. But now what happens? Jesus takes this heartbreaking response and he turns it into an object lesson for his own disciples. And so here's the first thing I want you to see from this response. I want you to see that the impossibility, if you will, of salvation. Look at verses 23 through 27. So the young man has walked off. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, see, it's so important that we understand the structure of this and what Jesus is saying here. Because when we read this at face value, here's what we hear. Oh, better to be poor than to be rich because it's hard for rich people to get into heaven. That's what we hear. We just hold on. 
walk with me for a moment here. I'm sure that when we understand this in their context, we'll understand why the disciples themselves were so amazed at the statement that it was hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. You see, the accepted teaching in their day among the Jews, which was loosely based on the covenant with God through which they received the Ten Commandments, was that health and prosperity was a sign of God's favor and blessing. Now, God meant that to them in terms of a nation, if you will. If you do these things, you will prosper, you will have blessing, you will have wealth. But things have changed and it's, they've become a law unto themselves, right? And so what they've done is the rich people are looked upon as the one who have God's favor upon them. And those who were not wealthy lacked the favor of God. Whether they weren't religious enough or faithful enough, there's a number of things that factored into this. But yes, the belief was that as a religious person, the wealthier you were, it was assumed you would be at the front of the line to enter the kingdom of God. Because your wealth and your prosperity was a sign that God was pleased with you. And why wouldn't God open the doors of eternity for you then? Now, think of this. So if it was hard for a rich man who they assumed had the blessings of God and favor of God upon their lives, if who, in this case here, this rich man who kept the law, was wealthy, the ruler of a synagogue of a church, if you will, who was extremely wealthy, if it's hard for him to get into the kingdom of God, of course, that makes sense then why we read in verse 26 that they were exceedingly astonished and said to them, well then, who can be saved? You see, if the rich man can't get into heaven, who has God's flavor, God's favor, sorry, and God's blessing, what possible hope do we have who are not wealthy? What hope do we have of entering the kingdom of God? So you see, when we read this and we understand it from their perspective, it wasn't only that Jesus was saying rich people won't enter heaven and poor people will. The idea here is, man, if they can't, then what hope do the rest of us have? And so this passage is actually implicating everyone. But why would it be difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? And it doesn't take much for us to figure this out. The reality is that wealth can easily become a God to us. And God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, wealth can become a God because wealth and great possessions can provide a degree of peace, a degree of comfort, a degree of satisfaction, a degree of fulfillment, and a degree of security. These are just to name a few that came to my mind. And I'm not the smartest one in the room.
But here's the thing. We can end up trusting in our wealth instead of God, who is our true peace, who is our true comfort, who is our true satisfaction, who is in whom we have our fulfillment, and who is our security. And with that said, poor people are not exempt from making an idol out of money. Because you see, there are actually many poor people who also treat money like a god. They just don't have as much of it. So whether rich or poor, when we treat money like God, we are guilty of idolatry. And it doesn't matter how well we think we keep the commandments of God. It doesn't matter how godly we seem on the outside. The reality is we are actually idolaters. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But now, <laughs> someone's listening. <laughs> oh, praise God. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> But back to the disciples' question. Listen, if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, then who can be saved? You see, the disciples are assuming then salvation is impossible. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to see. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. In fact, look at what Jesus says in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The reality is there's nothing you and I can do by which we are saved. There's nothing we can offer to God to say, Look at this, God. Does this not qualify? Is this not good enough? Because nothing is because we fall short of the glory of God. So no matter how much good we do, no matter how faithful or obedient we try to be, no matter how dedicated our service to God, the reality is there's nothing we can do that will save us. We cannot save ourselves. But for God, nothing is impossible. All things are possible with God. It is God alone who saves. Now, imagine Peter. Peter is perplexed by what he's heard. And I can just see Peter's mind spinning as he's thinking this through and he's trying to make sense of this all. And verse 28 says that Peter began to say to him, in other words, his thoughts are running. Right? He's like, whoa, this is like earth. This is like groundbreaking. This is what? Right? And so he's, here's Peter, is what he says. See, uh, we, we have left everything and followed you. So think about this. Here's what's going through Peter's mind. I'm guessing. 
you just told the rich ruler if he sold everything and gave it to the poor and followed you, he would have eternal life. But, but now you told us that salvation is impossible. If the rich can't save themselves, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. Now, we, we've read the story a hundred times over, and we're familiar with the story, so I think its relevance is lost on us. But when his disciples heard this, it would have been earth-shaking for them to hear this. And this leads into the promise of God that Jesus now reveals. Look at verses 29 through 31. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So here, Jesus now makes an emphatic statement. He's trying to get his disciples to understand what he's getting at here. Because now Peter may have experienced a degree of anxiety or fear. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the rich can't get in, how can we who have given everything up to follow you, how are we going to get in? And so Jesus makes this bold statement. Everyone who has left houses or family or parents or children or lands for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, Jesus says, will receive three things. One, in this time, you will receive a hundred times more houses and brothers and sisters and parents and children and lands and so on. Now, when I first broke this down, did... I found this confusing. Do you, do you find this confusing or does this make perfect sense to you? Like, I struggle with this because what I am hearing is what I could identify as nothing other than the prosperity gospel. In this time, Jesus, in this time, you'll receive a hundredfold more of what? Children, families, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, lands, houses. You will receive a hundred times more. So, what is he actually talking about here? Because he's not talking about in eternity. He's talking about now. Here's what I am confident about. He is not talking about the prosperity gospel as we see in our world today. You know what I believe he's talking about? The church. Why would I say that? Well, you remember after Jesus ascended to heaven... On the day on which the Holy Spirit was poured out, what the effect was of that event? People were coming to faith in Jesus by the thousands. And we read in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 44, listen, and all who believed were together. Remember, they were celebrating, they had been celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. And now all of a sudden, people from all over had come to celebrate. And now they're hearing the gospel and they're believing and they're, they're getting saved. And what's happening is they were together and had all things in common, meaning they shared with one another. 
right? In fact, it goes on to explain. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What do we see here? We see the family of God here, the church, and the church caring for one another. The family of God. In fact, Ephesians 2, 18 and 19, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, helping them understand that what had happened through the gospel of Jesus Christ in terms of Israel and those and the Gentiles, to those who had faith in Jesus. We read in Ephesians 2, 18 and 19, for through him, that's Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access into one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what I believe Jesus is talking about here. And within the church, we, 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 we reflect the family of God not just in terms that we make a proclamation of faith, but how we live it out when we care and serve one another. So when Jesus saves us, we become a part of the family of God. And as a family of God, this is truly our forever family. And this family continues to grow from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. In fact, look around in this room. If you are a believer, every other believer in this place is your real and forever, if you will, family. But it doesn't end here. The believers over at Eastwood Baptist, those over at Faith Church, those over on, at Fellowship on Elm, those over at Explore Church, those who are over who meet at Forge Church, all of these, all those who are believers in that place, although we may see certain things differently, when it comes to the gospel, we hold them the same. These are our true family. Look here, and the gospel doesn't, or the family of God doesn't just stop in St. Thomas, and that is now reflected here within our own church. When we see those who have joined us here from Ukraine within this place, those who come to us from Egypt, those who are here from Nigeria, or if you are Chinese, or if you're Korean, or if you're from Singapore, or if you're from the Netherlands, or if you're from the United Kingdom, or if you're from Ireland. I don't know if that one is in the other one or not. I don't know that area. Or if you were born and raised in America, or if you were born and raised in Canada, or if you were born and raised in Mexico, or if you're German, it doesn't matter. These are just some of the people who now make up the family we refer to as Redemption Bible Chapel St. Thomas. And it is a true family. God has already, we have received a hundredfold more. Man, these are, you're my brothers and sisters. We have the coolest family in the world. Oh, we may be messed up, but we're a family. We 
we have truly received far more. And I've said this before, and it's sometimes a painful saying, but it's true. You are more family with the believer sitting next to you that you've never met than anyone in your earthly family that has never come to faith in Jesus Christ. That was the first thing. Doesn't end there. There was a second thing that Jesus said, if you forsake everything and follow me, that you would inherit. And that's persecutions. What? Yeah. Because that's the cost of following Jesus. Now, most of us have not experienced a great degree of persecution. If some of us have really, besides maybe a little bit of teasing or mocking, haven't really experienced a great deal of it. But Jesus, or sorry, scriptures do tell us in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly, live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. Now we look at that and go, well, it's not true. We've never experienced it. Oh, no, no. We in this area haven't experienced it, but persecution of the saints have never stopped. Persecution has always been going. And I wouldn't be surprised if our turn is next. And see, all of this would affect their view of the wealthy being godly, as persecution also meant that meant the loss of all things. So this was really groundbreaking for the disciples while they were struggling with this as well. And so Jesus is also revealing that you can't assume someone like the rich man to be godly, even though he looks on it from the outside, while dismissing the poor as being ungodly because they're not wealthy. Because you see, even the, even the wealthy, if they seek to live godly, may lose everything. And so, you would receive a hundred times more in terms of family and possessions in the sense that we are family and what we have belongs to God. But secondly, we will also inherit persecution when we try to live godly lives for the glory of Christ. And then thirdly, he said that those who give up everything to follow Jesus will in the age to come inherit eternal life. And that we receive by faith. That's what gives us hope when our loved ones die. I was at a, my wife and I were at a funeral again this week for family in our own church who just lost another loved one. Someone who loved Jesus. But we don't grieve as those who don't have any hope. Because we do have hope. Because Jesus promised. That if we follow him. We'll have eternal life. And that was definitely the case this week. And I know some more of you are. Watching some of your loved ones. In this moment in this season. Who are close to the edge of eternity. And so, what more can I say about eternal life except that one day we shall all walk through that door 
And if we're in Christ, then we will experience it. And so we cling to that promise by faith. And then lastly, Jesus makes a final statement here. And I find it to be an encouraging statement in verse 31. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. There's different ways of interpreting this. I'll just give you the one that I think is the easiest to explain that I still still write. You see, I think what Jesus is saying is in the kingdom of God, things won't work like they do in the world. Many of those who in this life are first, who are in the front of the line, so to speak, who get first dibs because of their wealth or their position or their status or whatever it may be, will be last because the kingdom of God doesn't operate on those merits. Those who in this life, who are last because they have forsaken all for, the, for Jesus and for his gospel, will be in this terms, if you will, in the front of the line in the kingdom of heaven. See, you can't come to God based on the, the merits of this world because you got wealth or you're a good person or your status or whatever it may be. That does not put you in the front of the line. But if you forsake all to follow Jesus, and see, it serves as this great, great equilibrium, if you will, where it just levels the playing field, right? And so in the kingdom of God, these things are different. Now, I've kind of zoomed through the last bit here, but I want to say this in conclusion. Here's what we must understand. We often take comfort in the fact that we are saved because I accepted Jesus in my heart. I met with a gentleman a number of years ago who was handing out little Bibles. And he came and he met with me here in my office here. And he wanted me to come and join him handing out these little Bibles and leading people to Christ. And I think that's a good thing. The gospel needs to go forward. But I asked him, I said, Hold on a minute. When, when you say leading people to Christ, um, what exactly are you talking about? Like, how do you, are you sure that the people are getting saved? And he said, I'm like, help me understand what your belief is. So I asked him, I'm like, let me say we walk up to the door, we knock on the door, someone answers the door, we introduce ourselves, and we tell them, um, we have a little gift for you, it's a Bible, but we want to tell you about Jesus. And here's the thing, if you, if you make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved, right? And we'll say the sinner's prayer right here. We'll pray for you. You accept Jesus in your heart. Um, do you believe upon that profession of faith you're saved? And he's like, yes. I'm like, let me ask you a little differently. If this person, if I'm the one answering the door and I'm not a Christian, but I'm like, the fastest way to get out of this is just to go, yes, 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 and amen, and get you out. Right, And I'll sign the page in the back that says I accepted Jesus as Lord. And I did it just to get you gone. Am I still saved? He says, you said the sinner's prayer, you're saved. Brothers and sisters, that's not biblical. That's not, that's not biblical. We don't find that in scripture. That's not true. And so, yes, many believe that they're saved simply because of a profession of faith they made in Jesus years ago as a child, but they've lived like the world ever since. Many believe that they're saved because God has blessed them with wealth and prosperity and possessions, 
But the reality is none of these things are a good indication that we've actually been saved. A much better indication, and I still wouldn't say it's a perfect one, but a much better indication of whether we are saved or not is whether Jesus is worth more to us than the things that offer us comfort and peace, fulfillment, and satisfaction in this life. Could you walk away from that for the cause of Christ? Could you in this moment, could you right now this morning, in this moment, could you walk away from everything that you have because Jesus is just worth more to you than anything you have? If we can walk away from the comforts of this life because Jesus is more precious to us than the things that we have, that offer us these things, that is a much better indication that Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He saved us. Where's your heart this morning? It's easy to make a proclamation of faith in Jesus. It's even somewhat easy to try to be godly by simply keeping the Ten Commandments. It's easy to believe you're Christian because you come to church on Sunday morning or you give a certain amount of the money that you make back to the church. But ask yourself this question. Could you walk away from it all right now because you find Jesus to be worth more than anything you have? Oh, that Christ would be treasured in our hearts, be the true treasure of our hearts, and magnified in our lives, which would be an indication that he has saved us. Father, this morning, as we looked into this passage, I pray, Lord, that we would not take comfort in the fact that we we're saved simply because at one time I made a proclamation of faith in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us what we truly treasure in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that it would be Jesus. Father, I pray, I pray that our hearts would be consumed with Jesus, Lord. And I, and I realize my own short fallings in this, Lord, and and. Although I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I fall short. I don't love you the way I should. I don't love you with all my mind, with all my heart, with all my soul and all my strength. I don't. I don't. And I think, Lord, all of us in here could, could confess that. But, Lord, here's my concern. that you pressed upon my own heart about my own self, Lord. I don't want it to be an empty confession of faith. I don't want to be deceived thinking I'm on the narrow way, on the road to heaven, when I may not be. I pray, Lord, that you would assure us in our heart, that you would reveal to us in our hearts and the way we live that Jesus is the true treasure of our lives. 
Lord, we cannot do anything to save ourselves. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of, of obedience to the scriptures that will save me. But it is you alone that saves. And so, Lord, I believe that there are many of us in this room who did come to faith by accepting Jesus into our heart. I believe that happens, yes, Lord. But the evidence and the reality of that is worked out in our salvation through fear and trembling. Lord, don't let us be deceived. Show us our hearts, Lord. Everything is open and exposed before you. Lord, maybe what we need more, more of, is not more wealth and health and prosperity. Maybe what we need more of is more hardship so that the true desires of our heart would be exposed. I don't know, Lord. You know what we need. Lord, just do not allow us to be on, a, on this journey or this adventure thinking we're going one way when really we're going another, when we think we're on the road to heaven, when we actually may be on the road to destruction. Keep us, Lord, from being deceived, thinking that we're godly because we tried to be faithful to your word, when in reality your word has never really changed our hearts. Help us, Lord, not to trust in our possessions or in our wealth or whatever we have, Lord, that captures our heart. May Jesus truly be the true treasure of our heart, Lord. Father, do a work within us. Keep us from deception, Lord. Bring us to that place, Lord, as we read in 1 John. When we read of saints who are suffering for Christ and who were faithful to you, who loved the people of God and above all loved you, then by this we can know that we have eternal life and that we love you. Reveal to us our hearts and be magnified through us in Jesus' name.